Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Intracerebral hemorrhage, ICH, secondary to hemorrhagic stroke, can be a catastrophic complication associated with significant morbidity and mortality. Lowering blood pressure to prevent hematoma expansion in the acute period following ICH is a mainstay of treatment. However, there remains a clinical debate on the optimal blood pressure target as studies have examined various blood pressure goals. Join pharmacist Ali Karan to discuss the pathophysiology of ICH, review current guidelines, prior literature, and the results of the INTERACT-3 trial. Hemorrhagic stroke accounts for approximately 13% of all strokes and is associated with high morbidity and mortality, with mortality rates ranging from 40 to 50%. When patients present to us with an intracerebral hemorrhage, the likelihood of surviving this acute event is really a coin flip. When many of us think about stroke management, we think about acute ischemic stroke, with guideline recommendations for CT imaging within 45 minutes or door-to-needle time for thrombolytics within the first hour. But what about treatment of hemorrhagic stroke? Currently, the lack of a proven or surgical medical treatment has resulted in a lack of urgency to treat these patients and a low threshold for withdrawal of care, which contrasts sharply to acute ischemic stroke. One central component in the management of ICH is blood pressure, as many patients will present with hypertension and it is strongly associated with poor outcomes. Today, we will discuss the pathophysiology of intracerebral hemorrhage and risk factors associated with poor outcomes. We will look at current guidelines in their supporting literature and compare these to INTERACT-3, a new trial that was published this year. By the end of today, I hope that you guys will be able to develop recommendations for the acute blood pressure management in a patient presenting with ICH. I first want to call your attention to some important stroke statistics. On average, someone in the U.S. dies of a stroke every three minutes and 17 seconds. This means that by the end of our presentation today, approximately 15 people across the nation will die of stroke. Stroke accounts for approximately one out of every 21 deaths in the United States, and over 7 million deaths were attributable to cerebrovascular disease worldwide in 2020 with 3.25 million of those being from intracerebral hemorrhage. These statistics are staggering and show us just how necessary treatment guidelines and algorithms are to help guide the care of stroke patients. There are two main types of stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic. The vast majority of strokes that we see will be ischemic, and these are caused by a blocked or an occluded blood vessel. The two subtypes of ischemic stroke are based on the type of occlusion, either thrombotic or embolic. Hemorrhagic strokes are less common, but have the higher morbidity, mortality, and cost when comparing the two. These are caused when a blood vessel ruptures in the brain, leading to hematomas that impair oxygen and nutrient delivery in the brain. Our subtypes of hemorrhagic stroke are based on mechanism as well as location. They can be spontaneous, which occurs suddenly without a precipitating event, or traumatic that occur in the setting after an accident or trauma. The location of hemorrhagic stroke varies, but includes intracerebral, which will be the focus of our presentation today. 
ICHs can occur in the brain parenchyma or the surrounding meningeal spaces. They can also extend into the ventricles, which we refer to as an intraventricular hemorrhage or IVH. Common locations of ICH include the basal ganglia, thalamus, cerebellum, and pons. And of note, the cerebellum and pons are part of the infratentorial region of the brain. Hemorrhagic strokes in this area of the brain are associated with a higher risk of mortality. And as mentioned, the mortality rate in intracerebral hemorrhage is high, approaching 40 to 50% at 30 days. Modifiable risk factors for ICH include hypertension, which is our most common risk factor and cause of ICH, medication-related coagulopathy uh, from DOAX or warfarin, diabetes, smoking, excessive alcohol intake, and illicit drug use from cocaine or amphetamines. Non-modifiable risk factors include a prior ICH, older age, male sex, Asian race, chronic kidney disease, non-medication-related coagulopathy, and vascular lesions and brain neoplasms. The focus of our presentation today will be on spontaneous ICH, which has many different etiologies. By far, the most common is due to microvascular complications, including hypertension, followed by cerebral amyloid angiopathy, or CAA. Chronic hypertension leads to weakening of arteries in the brain, and cerebral amyloid angiopathy is a buildup of amyloid or protein deposits in arteries, both of which increase the likelihood of rupture. There are also many structural and other etiologies, but these are outside the scope of our presentation today. Specific symptoms of ICH are patient-dependent as well as dependent on the location of hemorrhage, but include unilateral weakness, nausea and vomiting, severe headache, hypertension, vision disturbances, and altered levels of consciousness. Symptoms of ICH present very similarly to acute ischemic stroke, which is why we depend on non-contrast CT imaging to differentiate between the two. When we think about injuries in ICH, we think about primary injury, which is the immediate tissue injury caused by the hematoma, and secondary injury, which is subsequent pathological changes that result from the hemorrhage. While ICH is considered a single event disease, it is more recently being considered a dynamic condition with multiple phases. First, we have our initial hemorrhage, which is caused by a sudden increase in blood volume, causing tissue compression and disruption in the brain. Next, we have hematoma expansion, which is caused by subsequent bleeding around the hemorrhage. Over 70% of ICHs are noted to expand within the first 24 hours, and this is an important factor in predicting patient prognosis as well as functional outcomes. And lastly, we have tissue edema. Acute bleeding causes the brain to recruit inflammatory cytokines and thrombin, which cause edema. This edema reaches its peak at 72 hours and is caused by activation of the coagulation cascade and an increased expression of thrombin, which may further propagate swelling. Hematoma expansion and tissue edema will lead to worse deficits and a higher likelihood of mortality, which may make you wonder about how we grade severity and mortality risk in ICH. And this leads us to the ICH score. This is a simple grading tool that leads to standardized and consistent grading in ICH. This is used largely in research, um, but it is not meant to provide prognostic information or predict patient outcomes. 
The ICH score grades severity and subsequent 30-day mortality based on five different characteristics, with presenting Glasgow Coma Score, or GCS, being weighted the heaviest, as this has been most associated with outcomes. Other factors that increase 30-day mortality include age greater than 80, ICH volume greater than 30 mils, which is seen on imaging, intraventricular hemorrhage, and infratentorial origin of hemorrhage. The total ICH score is out of six points, with a higher score equating to a higher mortality rate. We also have additional scoring tools in stroke, which include the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale Score and the Modified Rankin Scale. The NIHSS score quickly quantifies the severity of stroke in an acute setting, and scores range from 0 to 42, with scores falling into mild, moderate, or severe categories. The modified Rankin scale measures the degree of disability or dependence in daily activities and those who have suffered from a stroke. These scores range from zero to six, with zero, zero being no symptoms and six being death. Now that we have covered an overview of intracerebral hemorrhage, I wanna introduce a patient case and our first assessment question. NB is an should be a 79-year-old male brought to the ED by ambulance with complaints of severe headache, unilateral weakness, and vision changes. He has a past medical history of hyperlipidemia and hypertension, and vitals on arrival are listed below. Um, blood pressure is 188 over 100, and GCS is 13. Non-contrast head CT reveals a 36 mil acute hemorrhage in the left basal ganglia. Which of the following factors may increase NB's risk of mortality? A, ICH volume of 36 mils, B, patient age of 79 years old, C, GCS of 13, or D, location of hemorrhage in the basal ganglia. And I will give you guys a few seconds to log in and answer. Okay, perfect. I'm seeing a lot of A's which is correct. Um, so ICH volume of greater than 30 mils as seen on imaging will give the patient a point on the ICH score, therefore increasing their risk of mortality. Um, patient age greater than 80 years old will also increase their risk and a GCS of less than 13 will increase their risk. D is incorrect as there was no mention of intraventricular hemorrhage or origin in the infratentorial region. And next, we will talk about treatment recommendations for ICH. When thinking about the high morbidity and mortality that ICH carries, our treatment options are relatively limited. We can use pharmacologic management to treat blood pressure, intracranial pressure, blood glucose, fevers, and anticoagulation status. We can also use surgical intervention, such as hematoma evacuation or craniotomy, and select patients when benefit outweighs risk but our main focus today will be on blood pressure. As we know, this is the highest risk factor for ICH and many patients will present with elevated blood pressure on presentation. When thinking about acute hypertension and ICH, it is multifactorial. First, most patients will have uncontrolled chronic hypertension at baseline, so they will present with higher blood pressures. They also could be having a nonspecific response to stress or pain. And then lastly, it could be due to Cushing's response or Cushing's triad. This is a protective response with a goal to preserve cerebral perfusion pressure in the brain when there's an increase in intracranial pressure. This response includes an increase in blood pressure, a decrease in heart rate, and altered respirations. So let's take a look at the cerebral perfusion pressure equation. 
CPP is the driving pressure for perfusion of blood through the brain. The normal CPP is between 60 and 80, and there is a risk of hypoperfusion or ischemia when this number drops below 50. We can see that it also takes into account mean arterial pressures and intracranial pressures. Our perfusing maps are between 50 and 150, and our typical ICPs are between 5 and 15. And when we think about this equation in the setting of ICH, our ICP is going to increase due to hematoma expansion and tissue edema. This means that our map also has to increase to compensate for that change and maintain an adequate cerebral perfusion pressure. So this explains why we see our patients presenting with high blood pressures. And hypertension is associated with a greater hematoma expansion, neurological deterioration, and poor outcomes. And while it may seem intuitive to lower blood pressure to prevent hematoma expansion, some patients rely on these higher blood pressures to maintain adequate perfusion to their brain. So the key here is really finding a balance between preventing hematoma expansion and causing hypoperfusion to vital tissues and organs. When we think about our ideal antihypertensive agent, we need to keep a few key factors in mind. We want it to have a rapid onset, predictable kinetics, and be easily titratable to blood pressure goals. Since our patients presenting with ICH are extremely critical, all of our pharmacologic options will be dosed IV to help facilitate a rapid onset. Some options include first clavidipine and nicardipine as infusions. These are dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And the dosing of clavidipine according to the package insert, is two milligrams an hour, titrating by one milligram every two minutes. Here at Mayo, we often titrate by one to two milligrams every hour, every minute. Dosing from nicardipine is five milligrams per hour, titrating by two and a half milligrams every 15 minutes. Other options include labetalol, which is a mixed alpha and beta blocker, dose 10 to 20 milligrams with repeat doses every 15 minutes, and hydralazine, which is a systemic vasodilator. Dose 10 to 20 milligrams with repeat doses every four hours as needed. As we can see, hydralazine has a longer onset of action as well as a longer duration. And so we typically will reserve hydralazine as a second or third line option. There have been many blood pressure control trials over the years that have been the basis of guideline recommendations but the optimal blood pressure goal is still a topic of controversy. First, we'll take a look at Interact and ATTACK, which were our first major trials. Interact was a multinational open label trial that included patients with a CT confirmed ICH presenting with an SBP between 150 and 220. They compared intensive blood pressure lowering to less than 140 versus standard guideline therapy of less than 180 and their primary endpoint was hematoma expansion at 24 hours. They found that hematoma expansion was significantly higher in the SBP less than 180 group, but that there were no differences in adverse events, modified Rankin scale scores, or mortality. Our key takeaways here are that early intensive lowering of blood pressure is safe, and intensive SBP lowering reduces hematoma growth in spontaneous ICH. ATTACK was a multi-center dose escalation prospective study that included patients with a CT-confirmed ICH presenting with an SVP of greater than 170. 
They used IV nicardipine titrated to three different blood pressure goals, 110 to 140, 140 to 170, and 170 to 200. And their primary endpoint was feasibility to achieve and maintain the blood pressure in these target ranges. Key takeaways here are that safety endpoints were not statistically significant between the three different cohorts. And they found that it was feasible to achieve and maintain an SVP of less than 140. So now that we know lowering blood pressure in ICH is safe and also feasible, we'll take a look at Interact 2 and ATTACK 2, which were the largest trials done up to that point and have been the basis of our guideline recommendations since. Interact 2 was a multi-center, prospective, randomized, open treatment, blinded study that included patients with a CT-confirmed ICH and an SBP between 150 and 220, initiating treatment within six hours of ICH onset. They compared intensive lowering of SBP to less than 140 versus standard guideline lowering to less than 180, with intensive therapy initiated within one hour and maintained for seven days. The primary endpoint was death or major disability at 90 days. And although their ordinal analysis of modified ranking scale scores showed improvement in functional outcome in the intensive group, the key takeaway here was that intensive blood pressure lowering did not reduce death or major disability at 90 days. ATTACK-2 was a multi-center open label randomized trial that included patients with an SVP of greater than 180, an ICH volume of less than 60 mils, presenting within three to four and a half hours of symptom onset. They compared intensive lowering of SBP less than 140 versus our standard guideline lowering of SBP less than 180 using IV nicardipine as an infusion and IV labetalol as needed. Our primary endpoint was death or major disability at 90 days. Our key takeaways here were that intensive blood pressure lowering did not reduce death or major disability at 90 days, and this differed from the Interact 2 trial by using a protocolized approach with nicardipine and labetalol and only assessing blood pressure for 24 hours versus the seven days that was done in Interact 2. And now back to our timeline, we will take a look at how um, these trials have shaped our guidelines today. The most recent guidelines were published by the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association in 2022. Key guidelines include careful titration of blood pressure, avoiding large peaks and variability, initiating blood pressure lowering treatment within two hours and reaching target within one hour, lowering SBP to a goal of 140 with a target range of 130 to 150, and then to avoid lowering of SBP to less than 130, as this can be harmful. Mayo's practice is patient-specific to account for patients' baseline blood pressures, as well as provider-specific based on antihypertensive preferences. And lastly, we will take a look at INTERACT-3, which is our new trial published this year. INTERACT-3 stands for the third intensive care bundle with blood pressure reduction and acute cerebral hemorrhage. The primary objective of this study was to look at whether a protocolized approach bundle um, consisting of intensive blood pressure lowering along with three other protocols would improve functional outcomes in patients with acute spontaneous ICH. This study took place from December 2017 to December 2021, and the study design was complex. 
This was an international, multi-center, prospective, stepped wedge, cluster randomized, blinded, outcome assessed and controlled trial. And authors describe this as a hybrid discovery implementation design, meaning they were trying to mimic the natural rollout of a quality improvement project. On our right here, we can see our implementation of the care bundle. Hospitals were randomly allocated to one of three sequences stratified by country and the projected number of patients to be recruited over the 12 month study period. These sequences each had four different time periods, which dictated the order in which they would switch from their usual care procedure to the implementation of the care bundle. We can see here that in period one, all hospitals kept their usual care and monitoring procedures for patients with ICH. Those allocated to sequence one received the care bundle in period two. Those allocated to sequence two received it at period three. And then those allocated to sequence three received it in period four. The study was undertaken in 10 different countries with nine of those being low to middle income countries and one high income country. Hospitals were eligible if they lacked consistent ICH specific protocols and were willing to implement the care bundle. They included patients greater than 18 years old with a CT confirmed spontaneous ICH presenting within six hours after onset. They excluded ICH secondary to any structural abnormalities or reperfusion therapies or patients who were anticipated to be non-adherent either to the study protocol or follow-up regimens. There are four components of the care bundle, with the first being early intensive lowering of blood pressure to an SBP goal of less than 140 within one hour of treatment initiation. The second was blood glucose control with different goals depending on whether or not the patient had diabetes at baseline. The third was treatment of antipyrexia with a goal body temperature of less than 37.5. And the last was reversal of abnormal anticoagulation to an INR of less than 1.5. The primary outcome was functional recovery measured at six months using the modified Rankin scale. It's important to note here that our previous studies had looked at their primary outcomes at three months, but it is known that ICHs do have a long recovery period, so it may be beneficial looking at this extended time period. Key secondary outcomes included death or disability at six months, death at six months, hospital-related quality of life, hospital discharge by day seven, and residents at home at six months. Patient demographics and past medical history were well-balanced between the two groups. The mean age was 62 years old, and a majority of patients were male. A large proportion of our patients were of Han Chinese ethnicity, and this was just due to a large number of the hospitals included being located in China. Our study also grouped patients based on their occupation, and a large number of them fell into the category of unskilled, including farmers, laborers, among other occupations. And this suggested just that these patients may have had less access to medical care. The mean BMI was 24.1, which is lower than we typically see in our patients here. And the most common comorbidity was hypertension, followed by diabetes, previous ICH, and coronary artery disease. Approximately half of patients were on an antihypertensive agent at baseline, while only about 1% from each group were on an anticoagulation agent, with a majority of those being on warfarin compared to the DOACs that we typically use. 
Approximately 77% of patients had a modified Rankin scale score of zero before ICH onset, meaning that patients were fully independent at baseline. The median NIHSS and GCS were 13 and 12 respectively, with a median volume of hematoma of 15 mils, telling us that these were moderate sized ICHs and they were not shifted toward either extreme of the spectrum. The most common cause of ICH was hypertension in these patients, and over 90% of patients presented with an SVP of greater than 140, with a mean SVP of 174 and a mean diastolic blood pressure of 99.5. A third of patients presented with an elevated blood glucose, and only a small number presented with a fever or an elevated INR. Now, looking at treatment in the first 24 hours for each component of the care bundle. The proportion of patients that were given any IV blood pressure lowering treatment was higher in the care bundle group compared to the usual care group. Our most common agents used were urapidil, nitroprusside, lobetalol, nicardipine, and nimodipine. And just to note here, urapidil, which was their workhorse drug in this study, is not approved for use in the U.S., their dosing of these agents also differed from what we typically use, although I don't think either of these things would necessarily change our outcome. We can see here that the SVP target of less than 140 was reached in a majority of patients by 24 hours. We can also see that neither group reached the goal within one hour, but that the care bundle group did reach it quicker at 2.3 hours compared to four hours in the usual care group. A small number of patients required blood glucose treatment or fever treatment, and the median time to reach target was similar between the two groups. The correction of abnormal coagulation was definitely interesting in this study. Approximately half of patients that, that were received correction for abnormal coagulation or an elevated INR reached their target, but we can see that the median time to reach target was greater than 24 hours. This brings up the question of how often were researchers looking or testing their INRs. Since it is greater than 24 hours, we can assume that it was once daily. Also, I wanted to bring up that um, prothrombin complex concentrate, or PCC, was used in approximately 500 patients on treatment stays two through seven, which doesn't exactly correlate with our numbers. Why were so many patients getting reversed when only 65 patients were on an anticoagulant at baseline? And now I want to call your attention to the systolic blood pressure over the treatment course. We can see our usual care is in red and our care bundle is in blue. And we can see that as we approach 24 hours, um, the care bundle group is lower with an, a mean adjusted difference of 7.3 millimeters of mercury. This trend continues as we approach 24 hours with a mean adjusted difference here of 3.6 millimeters of mercury. And again, although neither reached their goal at one hour, the care bundle group did reach it more quickly. And the primary outcome was functional recovery at six months, measured on the modified Rankin scale. And this was measured as an ordinal outcome, meaning a shift across all categories. As a reminder, Scores on the modified Rankin scale range from zero to six, with zero being no symptoms at all, and six equating to death. There was a significant difference between the care bundle group and the usual care group and the overall distribution of scores, showing us that the likelihood of a poor functional outcome was lower in the care bundle group, 
with a p-value of 0.015. This was significant because it's the only study to date to show an improvement in disability as measured on the modified ranking scale. Looking at key secondary outcomes, um, there the care bundle did have a lower death odds of death at six months, All this, although this difference became non-significant when adjusting for patient characteristics and also country. There were also differences observed in the health-related quality of life, where the care bundle had an increased mean overall health utility score. And then the number of patients that were discharged from the hospital by day seven of treatment was lower in the care bundle group, but there was no difference in residents at home at six months. Thinking about some limitations of INTERACT 3, first looking at study design. So time was a confounding factor. This was a cluster randomized trial, which is basically a before and after type study. And many things could have been affected over time, especially because this took place during the COVID-19 pandemic. They also did not meet their power calculations in this study, likely due to recruitment issues during COVID. Thinking about the study protocol, the anticoagulation reversal practices were odd as many patients were reversed with PCC who were not on an anticoagulant at baseline. The antihypertensive agents were different than what we typically use with uh, urapidil being used the most. And researchers also did not address SBP variability, which is a hot topic right now as guidelines suggest smooth and controlled blood pressure control. Thinking about the patient population and demographics specifically, a large proportion of patients were Han Chinese with likely less access to regular medical care. They also was a low number of patients on an anticoagulant at baseline. Patients had a relatively low initial SVP on presentation as well, so this doesn't give us great evidence of what to do when patients present with higher SVPs. And I think INTERACT 3 leaves us with some unanswered questions. First, did the care bundle have favorable outcomes due to its components or due to increased care and attention to a critical patient? If we remember, all hospitals that were included in this trial did not have ICH protocols in place. So it's hard to decipher whether or not these favorable outcomes were due to its actual components or just having a general protocol to follow. Next, does pharmacologic agent for blood pressure control matter? Again, urapidil is not approved for use in the United States, and the optimal agent for blood pressure control in ICH has yet to be elucidated. And last, is SVP value or variability more important? This was not addressed in this study, but there is a growing movement in neurocritical care that shows the blood pressure number may not matter as much as the variability. And this may also bring up the question of continuous infusion versus bolus dosing, as continuous infusions may have a more ideal pharmacokinetic profile. We don't have great evidence for this right now, but it's definitely something that should be investigated in the future. And this brings us to our next question, um, which intracerebral hemorrhage study was the only one to show improvement in disability as measured on the modified ranking scale at six months? But great, looks like everyone is picking answer D. Um, so A, interact, that is incorrect. Um, they found that hematoma expansion was greater in the SVP less than 180 group, but that there was no difference in modified rank and scale scores, adverse events, or mortality. 
attack is incorrect. Um, they found no differences as well, just that it was feasible to achieve and maintain a blood pressure in their target range. And then attack two showed no major differences in death or major disability. So that leaves answer choice D, interact three as our correct choice in our first study to show improvement in disability at six months. And now I just wanna leave you with some key recommendations. So we should acutely manage blood pressure within two hours of ICH onset to decrease the risk of hematoma expansion and improve functional outcomes. We should avoid large variabilities in SBPs. To do this, we may think about using continuous infusions instead of bolus dosing, but ultimately this will be a patient-specific decision. We should titrate blood pressure to a goal of 140 with a, with a goal range of 130 to 150. And then while our optimal antihyperagent has yet to be determined, clavidipine, nicardipine, labetalol, and hydralazine are all options that we have at this time. And this brings us to our last assessment question. NB, our 81-year-old male patient, has a CT-confirmed spontaneous ICH. His blood pressure in the ED is 188 over 100 with a heart rate of 62 beats per minute. What is the best antihypertensive agent to begin in our optimal blood pressure goal? We have A, clavidipine infusion with 130 to 150. B, IV hydralazine, 20 milligram bolus, goal of less than 130. C, IV labetalol with a goal of 130 to 150. And then D, IV nicardipine infusion with a goal of less than 160. And it looks like a majority or everyone is getting this correct. So A, IV clavidipine infusion is a great option and it has the correct blood pressure goal. B is incorrect. Um, hydralazine is an option, but we typically reserve it for second or third line just due to its longer onset of action. And also B has the incorrect blood pressure goal. C, IV lobetalol is an option, but we would typically dose this as 10 to 20 milligrams or as an infusion. Um, and our patient NB also has a heart rate of 62. So we wanna use caution when using a beta blocker. And then D, IV nicardipine infusion is an option, um, but the goal is incorrect. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.